0: Love it. If you haven't gotten a handout, go ahead and grab one and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. And I just want to remind you as we get into Isaiah chapter 58 tonight that you know, everything that we've been looking at over the last several weeks is predicated on the truth of Isaiah 53, right? It's predicated on this truth, this reality that God the Father has sent forth his servant. He sent forth his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to To be the propitiation for our sins. To bear in our place the iniquity and the transgression that deserves the wrath of God. That he came and he put himself, offered himself as the sacrifice by which we, wretched sinners, can be received and redeemed by the holy God. And that he died a death of, you know, glorious proportion and then rose again on the third day. And he delights now even as he sees his offspring, right? And he delights to share with us the spoils of his victory. And so that's what we have to keep in mind as we're looking at these these several chapters in Isaiah before we come to, you know, sort of the the tail end of it all beginning in in chapter 60 where we talk about the future glories of of the new heaven and the new earth. And so I want us to look at this text tonight and I want us to receive it as both the um, proclamation and warning and encouragement that it is. So let's stand together and let's read these words from the prophet Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the living God. Isaiah writes, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins, yet they seek me daily. And delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, your word is truth. It is the only truth upon which we can set our feet with confidence in this world of lies and deceit and garbage father we need to hear your voice we need to hear your word even as there is a famine of the of the word in the land lord god your people long to hear you speak we want to receive your word with gladness and with joy with humility with an earnestness, Lord God, to be conformed to your word. Your word has power beyond our ability to even contemplate. The power, God, to raise the dead to life. The power to, to sanctify the, the soil. The power, Lord God, to give strength and unction to, to failing hearts. Lord God, the power to grant to us life in you. and We need it. And so I'm praying, Lord God, that you will bring your word in power tonight to our hearts. Father, that we would have hearts that want to hear what you have to say. And hearts that want to hear your word and respond to it personally. Not to pitchfork it here or there, but Lord, to hear these words and receive them for ourselves first, and for this corporate body. To hear these words, Lord, is the very words of life. So I'm asking you, Father, to please empty me of any reliance upon myself. Take my intellect and use its power as you choose. Take every gift that you've given me and use it to the praise of your glory. Give me the unction of the Spirit, I pray. And, and let my tongue speak messages for you. Be glorified here. Arrest the hearts of the hearers, God, and make us to together rejoice in your word. I pray in Christ's name, amen. So tonight, beloved, we're starting a new subsection in Isaiah. Okay, We're starting a new subsection in Isaiah, though it's not wholly different from the last section that we studied that began in chapter 56, okay? And I want to just take you back there for a moment. I want, to, I want you to remember kind of what we saw, right? In chapter 56 and in, in the first eight verses, we saw this, this, the progression begin. First thing we looked at was the marks of true faith, right? The marks of somebody who's truly, you know, in the Lord, in Christ, one who has truly been redeemed by the grace of God. And then we moved on to look in, in verses 9, chapter 56 and verse 9 through 57, verse 13, at the marks of the false teachers and apostates, right? Which was, a, was diametrically opposed to what we saw in the first eight verses. And then that, that subsection culminated with what God will do slash has done to bring his people to himself, right? And we saw that in the rest of chapter 57. And so tonight... We've got sort of a similar triad that begins in chapter 58. And it's, it's, it, it's similar, but it's, it's from a different perspective. And let me explain what I mean by that. What we see here, first in chapter 58, that we're going we're gonna to look at tonight, is really the difference between true repentance and religious ritual, right, in the first... 14 verses, the difference between true repentance and, and feigned devotion to the Lord. That's what we're gonna see in the first 14 verses, or the, or, the, or the 14 verses of chapter 58. Then we're gonna look at the reality of pervasive sin among the people, and then an expression of their repentance in chapter 59, uh, from verse 1 through the first half of uh, verse 15. And then that's gonna culminate in the rest of the chapter with the actions of the Lord to rescue his people from the degradation of sin and the schemes of the reprobate, okay? And so we're seeing, uh, you know, here's what true repentance looks like. Here's what false repentance and false devotion looks like compared with true repentance. Then we see the reality of sin and the need for repentance and the expression of it. And then we see God's working, right, to redeem his people. So that's kind of the triad that we're going to be looking at in this passage that we're looking at tonight. In Isaiah 58, again, it's a text that deals with the difference between true repentance and religious ritual, between humble worship and the attempt to manipulate the Lord. You know, the difference between superficiality in worship and sincerity in worship. And really it's kind of reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20, where you'll remember, if you remember, God catalogs the sins of the people. And he exposes their insincerity and the imaginary nature of their faith by showing how they engaged in religious ritual that didn't actually translate into righteous living and righteous relationships with other people. Like they put on the show of religion But their lives proved their professions of faith to be utterly false. They they were in the midst of a false and an ineffective religion. They were, you know, dominated by this insincere self-delusion that they were serving the Lord when they were really serving themselves. And at the end of that, you know, cataloging of their sins, the Lord calls them to repent. And the text in Isaiah 1 ends with these ominous words. Let me read them to you. If you refuse and rebel. Okay, this is after he calls them to repent. He says, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Sound familiar? It's the last words we read from the, the chapter we just read tonight, right? And the tone there is one of, if you don't repent, judgment is surely coming. Okay. Here, however, in this text, the tone's different. The tone's different. After the Lord's call to sincere repentance at the end of this text, he says, verse 14, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, the message here is, if you do repent, you will receive blessing from the Lord. You can't even imagine the greatness of it, right? And so, The change in tone here, where does that come from? Well, that change in tone, beloved, is directly attributable to the atoning work of the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we read about in Isaiah 53. God graciously extends the promise of his blessing through the work of his servant, who has suffered the judgment that we deserve, right? And he offers new life and an eternal inheritance with God, but we must sincerely repent in order to enter into that blessing. With me so far? With me so far? Okay, good. So let's look at this text, okay? Because here's the deal. This text really, if you think about it, perfectly parallels what we're seeing in Mark, isn't it? Doesn't it? Like, think about what we read in Mark in in chapters 14 and 15, where Mark tells us that, you know, that the Lord came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Right? The the message of the, the of the kingdom, the requirements of the kingdom, they haven't changed. They're the same throughout history. It's repent and believe, right? It's repent and believe the gospel. It's repent of your sins, even your false repentance and your religious ritual and your attempts to manipulate God to your own ends. Repent of those things and turn to the Lord. Believe and trust in him. Believe and trust in the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Respond with a sincere and Holy Spirit-empowered change of heart and life. In fact, this text in Isaiah deals with what the Puritans called true religion. They would write at an, to great lengths about true religion, which was really you know, a, a shorthand for true repentance and faith towards God that results in a consequent change of life. So when we look at this text, again, we're seeing the contrast between false and a true response to grace. The difference between superficial and self-serving religious ritual and sincere repentance before the Lord. And it's of vital and it's of essential importance that we understand this. It can't be overstated how important this is. In fact, I want us to see, first of all, this thing, the extreme seriousness of this message. Look at it again, verse 1. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. I want you to see this with me because this is really important, okay? The extreme gravity of this message, the extreme weightiness of this message is demonstrated by the nature of the commands that God gives to the prophet. Look at him again with me. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. I want you to notice this with me, okay? I want you to notice this with me. If Isaiah were to follow this command, he could be perceived as an angry preacher. Couldn't he? Oh, he's just an angry preacher, yelling at us. I want you to see this. The command directly is, don't be soft and fuzzy. It's not, you know, don't be reserved and quiet. Don't just go speak with a few people here or there. Rather, the command is, proclaim it. With the throat, literally, that's what that means. With the throat to everybody. He's to thunder out the truth with authority and power. He is to be direct. He's to be unwavering. He is to preach with fire. In fact, this might be the very passage, I don't know if it is or not, but this might be the very passage that Charles Spurgeon, from which. Charles Spurgeon derived that stirring command to preachers of the word preach not calmly and quietly as though you were asleep but preach with fire and pathos and passion right unless there be any misunderstanding the Lord says here lift up your voice like a trumpet now I don't know about you I've never heard a quiet trumpet have you that that reference to a trumpet is a reference to the shofar Remember the, the, the place that the shofar held, held in, 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 in ancient Israel, that trumpet that was made from a ram's horn? It was the primary device that was used to gain the attention of everybody in the community all at once. When the shofar was blown, when, when you heard that piercing blast, it was a sign for you to stop everything else that you were doing and pay attention. Drop everything and listen, right? And that's the idea here. So God commands the prophet to make his preaching as powerful and as stirring as possible. And here's why. When religion and, and, and repentance have become formalized. When, you know, devotion to the Lord devolves into self-serving ritual. When it's lost, lost its authenticity and its genuineness. That's not a time for passive, you know, gentle encouragement it's a time for powerful confrontation because such religion is nothing short of perilous and destructive rebellion toward God are you with me so then the Lord goes on to describe the peril of false religion and false repentance and so let's just read these next four verses starting with verse 2 and then we'll draw out some essential truths from it okay look at it with me the Lord says Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. They've evolved around the practice of fasting. And I want to say a little bit about that so we understand sort of the idea of what, what, what's being said here. Fasting, beloved, was synonymous with repentance. Fasting was, re- was synonymous with repentance. It was synonymous with humbling yourself and drawing near to the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament law, there was only one day of fasting that was prescribed, and that was on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, Okay? According to Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 31, on that day, it was a day for you to afflict yourselves, okay? It was a time for, in other words, humility and repentance before the Lord. It was a time for you to meditate on the seriousness of your sins and the greatness of God to make a way of atonement for them. But fasts were also declared at times of national emergency, for the purpose of mourning over sin, you know, collectively. And for, you know, repentance and for prayer. So the expression of repentance through fasting was a common theme. And there's two things to think about before we move on in this text. First thing is this. And listen to me when I say this. The symbol of repentance is not actual repentance. Repentance. I'm gonna say that again. The symbol of repentance is not actual repentance. In other words, here's the deal: somebody can go through all the motions of repentance, fasting, crying, wearing sackcloth and ashes, etc., and their heart can remain unchanged and just as rebellious as it ever was. Ritual is worthless, beloved, minus the heart. Unless. Our repentance is sincere. Unless it's a sincere hating of the sin, and hating that we've grieved Almighty God, and hating that we have dishonored his glorious name. It, unless it's, you know, hating the sin and not just the consequences, or not just that I got caught. Unless it's hating sin and loving God and his righteousness, it is absent of any value. And here's the thing about this. It's so insidious, man. It's so insidious, this fake repentance. I want you to hear me when I say this. It's so incredibly insidious. If you continue in the ritual without the reality, if you go through the motions without the substance, what happens is this. It makes true repentance all that more difficult. Are you hearing me? It inoculates you against the real thing. Second, we need to remember and we need to know that fasting and repentance is repentance. Repentance is fasting the experience the, the expression here. But repentance is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. But it's not a tool. It's not a tool or some kind of spiritual leverage to manipulate God into doing anything. You hearing me? It's not some tit for tat arrangement where you press the right buttons and therefore God responds in the way that you think He should. For instance, let's take fasting—you know, depriving yourself of food and and you know covering your head with sack with ashes and putting on you know a hair shirt sackcloth—and then being like, God, I've done all this and I've suffered so much and now I deserve this from you. You owe me this. Some people in the church have that false kind of notion about repentance. They have a false notion regarding repentance. And I want you to hear me when I say this. Religious behavior, listen to now, religious behavior for the purpose of getting something from God or for the purpose of manipulating him and thereby thinking that you can secure blessings from him that he would not otherwise give is nothing more than rank paganism. It's rank paganism. If I was a preacher who tweeted, I might tweet that out. Rather, here's the truth about fasting slash repentance. It's an expression of the conviction that my ways are sin. And God's ways are righteous. And I am turning from my sinful ways whether, whether God does anything or not. Now, God is gracious, of course. And he responds to true repentance with divine forgiveness all the time. He always does that. If you truly repent, God forgives. Praise God that he does, right? But God is not to be used. And his grace is not to be abused. It's only when we surrender our manipulative self-interest that we can receive for free the blessings that God gladly gives his creatures. You with me? This is heavy stuff, isn't it? I know. It was heavy on me when I was studying for it. So then what do we see here? Well, the first thing that God addresses is the insincerity of religious ritual. Look back at verse 2 where the Lord says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. The idea here is God is basically saying in feigned astonishment, Me they seek of all things. They act like they really desire to know me and to honor me. They act like they, that, that, they, they really desire to hear from me, my word. And the idea here is that their outward appearance doesn't match their inward reality. These, these false repenters, these fake fasters, like God doesn't regard them. They go through the motions of seeking God's face and to, of knowing his ways and desiring his vindication and his blessing. They delight to draw near to God, but, but here's the key. Here's the key statement God says here. As if. Giving the impression that. Pretending that. Putting on a show like they are a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. As if. Like they're actually a nation of people that desire such things. The point is they don't. It's all show. It's all make-believe. They might appear to be zealous for the truth and zealous for God, but not in sincerity. That's what God's getting at here. John Oswald, in fact, points out the divine irony in all of this. He says... There is then a terrible irony in these peoples asking God to work his righteous justice in their lives or in longing for his nearness. If he should answer their request, it would not be a pleasant experience. Exactly. No kidding. It's like the Lord Jesus said of the Pharisees, right? The prototypical fakers. Actually, quoting from Isaiah 29, he says... Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Religious pretension, beloved, doesn't equal true devotion. You with me so far? Then look, the Lord addresses the unreality of their fasting slash repentance slash devotion at the beginning of verse 3. He presents them as saying... Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? In other words, the idea is, you know, the hearts of the people are crying out, well, you know what, we fasted and humbled ourselves before you. Why aren't you doing anything? We've, you know, why aren't we seeing you move? Why haven't you blessed us? We're doing our part here, God. What's the deal? and the Lord answers. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? God says, in essence, your repentance is insincere. It's self-serving. It's for your own pleasure and your profit. In other words, it's not the expression of a truly changed heart toward God. Instead, it's manipulative and it's fake. The idea is that their religious exercises were primarily for themselves. That's what God's getting at here, right? your own pleasure. It was for themselves. It was for the appearance of of piety. It was to satisfy their own covetous nature and try to manipulate God to fulfill their fleshly wants. They were going through the motions of worship and repentance and humility before God so they could be thought of by the community of faith well. You know, so they could be thought well by the community of faith. It was all sham. And the proof was found in the fact that they were still the same old people they'd always been. Nothing changed. They still oppressed their workers. They fought and quarreled with one another for position. They mistreated other people, and they did it all with a religious air about them. It had no substance, their repentance, their fasting, as evidenced by the fact that their lives were unchanged. Beloved, the only repentance that counts with God is the sort that can be seen in a changed life. You with me? People can be, I'll tell you what, here's what I've noticed as a pastor. I've seen this. I have seen this, man. People can be hyper, hyper hyper-focused on the rituals, hyper-focused on the details, on religious ritual, you know, the, 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 the dotting of every. and the crossing of every T and about how people are dressed or you know whatever they can be really fixated on the minutia you know straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel they can be really hyper focused on religious ritual and be completely devoid of spiritual life Hearing me? They can be sticklers for everything. And be absent, the life of Christ in the soul of man. And that is not to say that you can just go hog wild and do whatever you want in the church and that's not what I'm saying. Okay? This is not a this is not a a, a PSA for you know that's a public service announcement. That's not a public service announcement for the multitude of whacked-out churches whose worship resembles nothing from Scripture. But my point is, there are people that can be hyper-focused on the ritual and miss the reality. You With know me? Mean? In fact, God goes on to say, "Your fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high." Right. In other words. God is saying plainly, I have no regard for religious theater and play acting. None. The fasting was religious performance minus the guts. It was the exact opposite of real fasting and repentance, of real humility and drawing near to the Lord, of real concern for righteousness and honoring God with the whole of one's life. And before the Lord, it was all worthless. It wasn't true fasting. It wasn't true repentance at all. Now, Those are strong words, aren't they? Those are really strong words. But they're necessary, aren't they? He deals with it. Make believe. And then, praise God, the Lord turns to talk about the evidence and the blessings of true fasting and true repentance. And it's beautiful. Right? Look at it with me. I just want to take this chunk by chunk and get to the heart of what the Lord is saying here. Look at verse, verses 6 and 7. Lord says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? True fasting, true repentance, real devotion to the Lord, he's saying, leads to a change in your behavior. The idea from this description is that that true repentance transforms the way in which we view the righteous commands of the Lord and therefore how we interact with one another in the community of faith and outside of it, right? Right? In true fasting and repentance, the bonds of wickedness or the yoke of sin on our hearts, its its mastery is broken and we see ourselves now as servants for the Lord's sake and servants for the spiritual good and the the material good of the people that are around us. There's a change in our actions. We deal with other people now in justice, in mercy, and humility, as the Lord describes here in very specific ways, right? Sharing your bread with the hungry, bringing the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, covering them. And we do it, we do it, here's why. Because we each refuse to hide yourself from your own flesh. What does that mean? That is a strange statement. Here's what it means. The idea here is that you don't pretend to be other than what you are. You see yourself as you really are. You see yourself as a sinner that is in need of grace always. Like your need for grace is not just the moment you're saved. Your need for grace is every day of your life after. And that's the thing here, right? When we're really repentant, truly repentant before the Lord, we see ourselves as we are. We see ourselves in need of grace. We see ourselves in need of mercy from the Lord. And here's what happens. That realization Well, that I'm not all that, and that apart from Christ, I'm a foul, wretched sinner with no hope, and then I need grace and I need mercy every day from the Lord, that realization then flows forth in the same to others, in the same way to others. We regard them in grace and in mercy, right? We serve them as God served us in Christ, you with me? And then the Lord says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. Man, there's a mouthful in that. Isn't there? There is a ton in those that verse and a half, right? But here's the idea. You know, to sum it up, when we truly fast, when we repent from the heart and not merely as a religious performance, God promises to each one of us a fresh beginning, a, like a new dawn. He promises the healing of our souls, a healing of the wounds that sin has inflicted upon us. You know, we don't sin with impunity. It's not like we sin and nothing happens to us. No, we sin. And that sin leaves indelible marks on our souls that can only be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord promises a new experience to the truly repentant, right? Right? An experience of righteousness and obedience to the Lord. Walking in the way of righteousness. Your righteousness shall go before you, right? And then he says, he promises here the Lord does his faithful guardianship and security. The rear guard, right? And with true repentance comes the promise of prayer heard and received and answered, right? With, when we cry, God himself hears and he answers, here I am. It really reminds me of the psalmist in Psalm 66 in verses 18 through 20 when he writes, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. The Lord continues saying verses second half of verse 9, verse 10, If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noon day. The idea is something like this. If you'll just simply own and reject the yoke of sin, if you'll put sin away and you'll forsake it, if you'll just do that and not point the finger at another and how great their sin is, Or point the finger at another in the attempt to justify your sin because of what others have done to you. If you'll just own your sin and repent and walk in repentance, especially towards those you've wronged, then your darkness and your gloom will be replaced with light and with life. You will have a new lease on life, is the idea here. And the Lord, verses 11 and 12, will guide you, continue, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Well, this is incredible. The Lord promises to the one who truly fasts slash repents that He'll lead your steps for your good. And he will be himself the steady supply of grace for your every need. That's the idea of God's promise to satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. He, he, he gives the promise of fresh vitality and strength, living water. And we know that's the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Right? From the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke about the Holy Spirit. And the result for the truly repentant soul will be that there will be a renewal of spiritual life and there will be a restoration. And and you will be the beginning of a stable and a secure building in the Lord. In other words, true repentance in yourself will lead to true repentance in others. And that's the idea there behind verse 12. Some have taken it you know, as a reference to the building and the restoration work after the return from Babylon. It goes far beyond that picture. And then, to close it all off, to finish it all off, The Lord turns to the Sabbath. And it may seem like a strange pivot, but it really isn't. It really isn't when you think about it. Think, a a national fast, right, slash repentance, it was for the purpose of humbling yourself and drawing near to the Lord, to meditate again and mourn over the seriousness of your sins and the greatness of God to make a way of atonement, you know, to just prostrate yourself before God for the many sins that you've committed And pray that he would in some way respond. Not obligating him, but just praying that he would. Right? But here's the thing God had already provided one day in seven to do that exact thing. You see it? The Sabbath, right? Isn't that interesting? Honor the Sabbath as you should, he's saying here, in sincerity and in truth. For its true purpose and not as ritual obligation and repentance, beloved, becomes a matter of course, doesn't it? Drawing near to the Lord becomes an established practice. Hearing his voice, responding to his word becomes the natural course of life. When you do that, the need for an emergency fast sort of evaporates, doesn't it? I'm not saying there are not times for sincere repentance, national repentance and mourning. And, you know, we've, we've had plenty of those in our nation in the past. The problem is the repentance has been short-lived. And whatever you know, repentance took place was soon swallowed up by further degradation and depart, departing from the Lord. But that's why the Lord turns to the Sabbath and he says, look at these words again, verses 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now there's two ways for us to understand that phrase if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, okay? And theologians are divided on it. Some say it means, you know, if you turn your feet back to the Sabbath, you know, in order to honor the Sabbath again. And then other theologians say, well, it's not quite that, it's more this. It's if you turn your foot back from trampling the Sabbath, right? And they duel with their pens over this, like page after page, I'm not kidding. I look at that and I go, why are you guys arguing over this? Because when I look at that, it's pretty evident that both things are in view here. Aren't they? It's very obvious. Start honoring the Sabbath and stop trampling it under your feet. You could say it like that. Putting both thoughts together, right? Stop trampling the Sabbath. Return to its original meaning. And I say that because of what, you know, what follows here. They profane the Sabbath, beloved, by doing your pleasure on my holy day. Going your own ways. Seeking your own pleasure. Talking idly. Here's what the Lord's saying. You have completely missed the point of the Sabbath. Before anything else, above everything else, honor the Sabbath, honor the Lord's day. That is intrinsically what it means to be God's people. Like, when people try to argue with me about that, I think to myself, how can you be so obtuse? As opposed to everybody else in the world. As the redeemed of the Lord, you regard the Sabbath whereas they do not. Pretty obvious delineation, isn't it? Honor the, honor the Sabbath day. Rather than using the Sabbath as a personal, for personal preference, as a free-for-all, as a day for doing whatever you please, acting as if the Sabbath is, is optional, or it's just a day for you to indulge in whatever you desire. And, you know, just dragging yourself into inane, worthless speech and conversation about things that don't matter. Instead of doing that, recognize sabbath for what it is the holy day that's set apart to draw near to god in humility and repentance and faith rightly observing the sabbath should be a delight to the faithful soul right like it's it's not the oh we got to go to church oh we got to go to sunday school we got to hear we got to hear him preach for an hour I'm being generous to myself. An hour and 10 minutes. It's not that. It's a delight. It's a day to draw near to God. It's a high, holy, special day, not to be taken lightly. A day devoted to the Lord and doing the Lord's will and His work. And when you approach the Sabbath with a proper heart and intention of soul, the Lord becomes your delight. And the promise is this. That you'll ride on the heights of the earth. That is, you will rise above earthly difficulties and hardships and you will enjoy life in him regardless. And you'll enter into the sufficiency and the provision that the Lord has for his people, including all the promises of his covenant, right? The heritage of Jacob. And so the Lord's message is, you know what? Make your repentance true. Make your devotion true. Don't be satisfied with the symbol and not the substance. Don't be satisfied with that in your life, beloved. Don't be satisfied with, you know, the lesser... Americanized versions of faithfulness to Jesus. I was talking to Jerry today. He won't mind me telling, telling you this. I'm, I'm not going to mention he was talking to you, but he's talking to somebody who was once a part of this church, and they said, you know, the problem, the reason we left is because you just take it, it's too serious. That it's too serious. What does that even mean? When it comes to your eternal soul, what is too serious? Listen, I've said to you this before. I'll say it again. Real repentance, true repentance, even and especially for a Christian, that's not a bad thing. Like, and neither is the clarion call to faithfulness to the Lord some kind of spiritual abuse or pastoral high-handedness or unkindness or toxic Christianity. No, that's just Christianity. That's what that is. And whenever people talk about toxic Christianity, I want to say, how about you define that word toxic? Oh, you mean toxic to your, 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 your self-image? Toxic to your desire to continue in sin? Toxic to your desire to want to claim Christ but not live like it? If that's what you're talking about, yeah, it's toxic. Repentance is a gift from the Lord. True devotion is a gift from the Lord, and it lays hold of the grace of God in such a way that it transforms and strengthens and secures us and satisfies our souls with good things. I can't stress this enough. Religious ritualism, false repentance, it might give the appearance of faithfulness to God, but it lacks the reality. And eventually, that lack of reality is exposed. And that's why we got to be so careful to examine ourselves and to repent from from our heart and from our soul for, for our spiritual joy. Man, God here enumerates his tremendous blessing to those who sincerely repent and who respond to him in sincere devotion, right? So let us be sincere repenters and honest worshipers and enjoy the incomprehensible blessings of God, the faithfulness and the blessings of God. Because taking the Lord seriously is not the path to condemnation or oppression. Beloved, it is the path to freedom and joy. And it's the only path to freedom and joy. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for these words. And just as they have hit the mark, God, in my own heart, as I have been studying and praying and preparing this message, I pray that they will hit the mark in everyone's heart in this room. And I pray, Lord God, that we would hear these stern yet encouraging words as the expression of your deep and abiding love for us, your people. Let us hear them. Let them sink deeply into our souls, Lord. And may they produce in us the response that pleases the heart of God. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your holy word. Lord, we love you. We are so grateful to you for this time. I am so grateful to you for this time. I'm I don't. I'm so glad we meet on Wednesdays. I, I, I couldn't get by with just one day a week. Thank you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. As we come to you in prayer now, I pray, Lord, we will unburden our hearts before you, knowing that we can cast our cares upon you because you care. Because you're faithful, because you're good. Because when we approach you in true repentance and true humility, and Father, with a heart of of worshipful affection, Father, you hear our prayers and you say, here I am. And so I pray that you would hear our prayers tonight. Draw our hearts out to you, Lord God, to pray by the unction of the Holy Spirit those things that are in keeping with your holy will. And Lord, answer powerfully, I pray, in Jesus name. Amen.